Well, welcome to Arbor Church. Um, this is cool. Welcome to our very first 11 o'clock service. This is pretty amazing. Yeah, things are moving. This has been nuts. Um, hey, just so you know, we're going to continue in our series. So throwing it forward, you've got some notes in front of you. I always forget those. Um, if you want to go ahead and keep notes, if I happen to say anything halfway interesting, I'm not sure if I will, but I'll give it a go. Um, and you can write those down, and that would be awesome. So there's notes there. And I don't want to waste a bunch of time because I'm excited to talk about one of the most uplifting passages in the Bible, Ananias and Sapphira. And so... So we're going to jump into that today. And so um, what we're doing is we're in a series called Acts, Birth of a Church. So the reason we're doing this is obviously we're just starting a church. And so why don't we look at the first church, what they did, how they operated, because they literally changed the world. And our hope is that we would change our community. And so we want to kind of look at them because we want this church to reflect the first church. And so let me give you a little quick update, bring you up to speed, a little review of what has happened thus far in the book of Acts, because you're literally coming into um, the, uh, the, um, the middle of the series. So what has happened in Acts is that Jesus has ascended back into heaven. So he was born, lived, died, was, he rose from the grave, and then he rose back into heaven. He ascended into heaven. But before he went up into heaven, he said to his disciples, to his apostles, wait, I've got something for you. And that something was the Holy Spirit. That was the promise fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And so the Holy Spirit prior to that time was not available to all men. But then at that point in time on Pentecost, he came down and now indwells in believers, fully indwells in us. Prior to that, he was just in prophets or in certain points in time on the earth. But at this point, he became available to all men, which we celebrate. Now, why did is he available to all men? And what does he do inside of us? He gives us power. Power to do what? Power to give the great news, the gospel message out there. And so that's what the first church did. They were spreading the gospel. And that message helped the church to grow. Thousands upon thousands decided to put their faith into Jesus. Um, and everything was great. It said they had all things in common and that the church was loving one another. And so it was truly all rainbows, unicorns, and kittens. And then we hit chapter 5 which is what we get to talk about today. We get to talk about the first major mistake of the early church. And so let me ask you quickly, how many of you, by a raise of hands, have ever made a mistake? Raise your hands. Perfect. Awesome. That's great. That's so awesome. That's, that's good. Um, a little known secret, you do not have to be perfect to come to church. Uh, perfection is not a requirement. If it was, a perfect, you had to be perfect to come to church. Obviously, I'd be the only one here at that point in time. Which is totally not true, but, um, and truthfully, what I want to share with you, I'm going to share with you uh, the first real ministry mistake I made, and probably the worst that I ever made. Um, I was a youth pastor for like 15 years, loved youth ministry, and uh, one time I was uh, playing basketball with some of the leaders and some of the students, and, and you'll get to know this about me, I'm, I love to play for the fun of the game, but I also like to win, all right? I am a competitive person by nature, and I was playing, and there was this guy named Tim who was guarding me. He was a junior high student. <clears throat> His name really was Tim, and, uh, and Tim, uh, he, what he did is, uh, I don't know if he'd ever played basketball before. I don't know if he knew how the sport worked, because uh, every time I would shoot, he would literally come and push me or shove me or check me. I pass the ball off, and it's like, bang, I get hit, and so I'm kindly as a patient youth pastor. I'm like, bro calm down on the fouling, all right? It's a game. Let's play fair. Let's play honest. And, and the next thing I know, I shoot again. I get smashed. I'm like, Tim, 
brother, slow it down, man. And then finally, mid-court, I remember this, passed the ball off, and I get slammed from the back, and I turned around calmly and said, <laughs> not calmly, I turned around to Tim, and I promise, I've, I've never said this before in my life, I've never said it since, but I was like, Tim, remember, I'm a pastor, he's a student. I'm like, Tim, stop being such a dick, is what I said to him. And I've never used that word before prior in my life, and I never said it before, and I figured two weeks ago I said the word balls, so I might as well just throw it out there. <laughs> and so, but I truly did, I said that to him, and, and I don't know if you've ever had those moments where you're like, mm, yeah, wait, come back. Like where you say it and you want the words to come back. And I mean, oh, the moment was that he was standing there. He was having a good time. He didn't know what he was doing wrong. And all of a sudden, he broke into tears. He just broke into tears and he ran off the court. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like my, I, I didn't know. I just stopped playing and I followed him. I'm following him like, oh, my gosh, what have I just done? I'm going to get fired. This is crazy. And I go and I find him sitting in a hallway with his, um, his elbows on his knees just sobbing. And so I, I go up to him and I truly am like, Tim, I am so sorry. I apologize. I'm, I'm so sorry. I did not mean that. I am so sorry. And Tim, through his sobs, because you thought that was bad, it gets worse. Tim literally is like, I, I expected that from people at school. I expected that from, catch this one, my dad. But I never expected that from my hero, is what he said. And And I didn't know I was Tim's hero, otherwise I wouldn't have called him a dick, you know? <laughs> and, but he, ah, oh, it's just one of those moments, and I, I'm, I'm happy to say Tim has found a great therapist, he's doing fine. <laughs> In fact, actually, we're friends now, we're good friends and, um, and, and whatnot, but man, we make mistakes, we all do. And as much as I wanted to keep that in, it just mistakes fly out of us. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about one of the mistakes that was made in the, in the, in the, um, the acts in the first church. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to have Jan stand up, and I want her to read. Thank you, Jan. I'd love her to stand up and read Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now here's what I'd like to ask of you while she reads. And that is this. Would you please listen? Because what happens oftentimes when scripture is read, um, our mind starts to check out or we start to not pay attention. But listen to the words that she's about to say in Acts chapter 5. So go ahead, Jan, go for it. Thank you, Jan. Man, that's encouraging, isn't it? I honestly think that story is a good reason why we can trust the Bible. Seriously, because who puts that kind of, who makes that kind of stuff up? Unless it actually happened. It's a great reason why you can trust the Bible. But most pastors, when they go through and they do a series on Acts, they skip over this part. Most, I have not heard a lot of sermons on Ananias and Sapphira. And the reason why is it's a really difficult pa passage. Like, what do you do with that? They made a mistake. God smited them. They died in the moment. And so what do we, what can we learn from that? And so what we're going to do is we're going to try to see if we can pull some, uh, some, what God wants us to know out of Acts chapter 5. And so we're going to walk verse by verse through each parts of that. And we're going to um, pull out what we can. So let's start in verse number 1. Verse number one, chapter five, it says this. It says, but 
And when you see a but in the Bible, you just need to know you need to stop and look at it. Truly, I learned that in junior, or like in um, youth ministry, and I've never forgot it because what it means is in contrast of. And so we have to stop there because we need to know what event happened prior to this. And I think this is where the mistake oftentimes is made in this passage is that we don't look prior to it because you think, oh, Ananias and Sapphira, it starts in chapter 5, but really the full story starts in Ananias chapter 4, verse 34. And so let's read that real quick and look at the context that's this in. And we always want to take, you guys, Scripture in context. We want to take chunks of passages and read through those, not just pick and choose verses out to make the Bible say what we want it to say. We want to take God's word, put it in the context of what it was originally spoken, and then transfer that principle over time and over culture to here we are today to find out what we can apply. And so here's what it says in verse 34. It says, there were no needy persons among them. And them is the apostles and those people that are beginning to put their faith in Jesus. That's who they are. And there was no needy person because there was no greedy person at that period of time. Here's what it says. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And, and it was distribu uh, distributed... Um, uh, to anyone who had need. So they brought, basically from time to time would bring the money that was, they would sell land and then they would bring the money, put it at the apostles' feet. What you need to know, and I want to take a side note here, say this, is that this is not promoting communism. There's a handful of people that would literally, Sean, you're laughing because that's literally what you were thinking. Um, it is not promoting communism. It's not forced redistribution, okay? What it was is it was voluntary, People saw a need, and they said, hey, I don't need this. I could give it to help meet that need. It was sacrificial giving and their own free will to be able to give those things, and so that's what they did. And then in verse 36, we meet a guy named Joseph. That's his original name. So Joseph is a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas. How many of you have heard of Barnabas? He's all throughout the book of Acts. He's like Paul's right-hand man, but this is where he's introduced, and just so that you know, Barnabas is his nickname. His real name is Joseph. And so Joseph, or Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, the reason a lot of theologians believe that this is actually kept in the Bible is because they believe this might have been the first time that Barnabas was the first person to actually do this. And so he received a lot of accolades. He received a lot of attaboys and even some position inside of the church. And so when Ananias and Sapphira set forth to come up here, this is what has already happened. We need to have that in our minds, that context, that this was done before and it was well praised at that time. And so let's look at what Ananias and Sapphira, how it happens there. It says, but a man named Ananias, which by the way, just so you know, ironically, his name means mercy of God. So the guy who literally gets smited in the moment of making a mistake, his name literally means mercy. Together with his wife Sapphira, which means beautiful one, they also sold a piece of property. And so also, who sold it first? Barnabas. So as a result, they sold theirs too. With his wife's full knowledge, so his wife knew about it, he kept back. Those are the key words there, and we will come back to those words. He kept back part of the money for himself, which is interesting because it's for himself. So who's missing from that equation? His wife. He's not keeping back any of the money for his wife. He's keeping it back for himself. 
but he brought the rest, so a portion, a percentage, a leftover, and put it or laid it at the apostles' feet. So at first glance, when we look at this passage, it feels like it's a good thing, right? Like they had something in excess, and they gave a portion of it. But the key thing in this is to look at the words kept back, because in the Greek, it doesn't simply mean they withheld a little bit voluntarily. It means to pilfer or to embezzle or to steal is what those words mean. Kept back in the Greek literally means to embezzle or to steal, which raises the question, how can you steal something from yourself? How can you steal something that you already own? And the answer to that is None of us truly own anything. It is all God's. And it's a great reminder that we are stewards of his stuff. We are stewards of what he has given us. And so we'll come back to that in a sec. Let's look at what Peter says right here in his response. And I love Peter's response. Um, It's very interesting. Peter is probably what's considered to be the first pastor of the Israelite church. So he's in there. He's the first pastor. And most pastors at this time, what would they do? If I can tell you what I would do, if someone sold their land and brought up a massive gift of money and said, here you go, I would say, thank you. That's amazing. Well done. You're going to, this is going to serve the kingdom in such great ways. But what does Peter do? Peter doesn't do that. Peter asks the question, is that all? He asks the question, is that all? Are you really giving everything? So we don't know if, um, if the Holy Spirit gave him this discernment or if he knew how much the land should have cro- cost. But where I give props to Peter is that he literally had the courage to say, wait, what? No, that, that's, that's all? So he literally asked that question. Then Peter said, um, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied? And that's huge. Who did he lie to? The Holy Spirit spirit, and you have kept or held back or deceived or embezzled for yourself some, not all of the money, but some of the money you received for the land. Verse 4, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, it was in your possession the whole time. You could choose to do what you wanted to do with it, and yet you chose to hold some back. What made you think of doing such a thing? And here's his mistake. You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. That's the mistake, is lying. See, the problem was, and I actually, when we first looked at this, I had thought I was going to do a message on giving this Sunday. And then when I went and studied the passage further, I realized this has nothing to do with money. Truly, this passage is not a whole about, it's not that they didn't give any, everything up, it's that they said they gave everything up, and they lied about it. They presented, hey, here's everything, look how great we are, we're just like Barnabas. We're just like Barnabas, and yet they lied about it. So the mistake was not that they didn't give everything, it had nothing to do with money, the mistake was that they lied. That they deceived people and everyone into believing that they were more generous, more giving, more holy than they really were. I'm so glad that we're not like that today, that we have matured past that type of thing, that we would never do anything to try to impress people or put a post on Facebook where like, oh, we just want to, you know, embellish the truth just a little bit, or we would buy a certain pair of shoes or a car or, or whatever it is to impress other people. 
I had a, I had a friend years ago um, when I was doing youth ministry, we were in a meeting and we were doing it at houseboats. We'd go on this retreat at houseboats. And um, one of the things we did at houseboats is we would take the students on jet skis and we'd ride them around in the, in the, in the lake. And uh, we, uh, we had the leaders drive them around because it would be really bad if you had the students drive themselves around on jet skis. And I remember at a leaders meeting, we asked, okay, who has some skill when it comes to the jet ski? Who's done this before? And I had a certain guy raise his hand, and he's like, oh, yeah, man, I do it all the time. I've driven him a bunch. Um, I know I do it all the time. I, I don't even know. He might have even said he had one. I don't remember at the time. I just remember him telling us, all of us, all the leaders in that meeting, how great he was on a jet ski. The problem was he'd never driven a jet ski. But he told us all that he had driven a jet ski. And so one of the things that we would do when we were there was we were driving. I love driving jet skis. We'd go up to the back of the houseboat, and we would turn fast, and we'd shoot water all over the people on the back of the houseboat just to spray them. That's what you do at high school camp. It was so fun. And we would do that, and we'd come in. you got to go fast to be able to do that. Well, this guy, he comes in. He's got two students on the back of his jet ski, and he's coming in as fast as can be, and what he does is he's going to try to turn and spray everyone in the water, just like everybody else, just to impress like everyone else, and he's coming, and what he does is he's coming to this high speed, and he lets off the gas, and then he turns. Now, if you've driven a jet ski, you know the only way those things turn is if the gas is on, right? And so he lets off the gas, and he turns, and where does the jet ski go? Straight. It goes straight into the back of the houseboat, up onto the deck, and into the front, the back door. With students on the back, I didn't see it, but I heard that students saw him coming and literally jumped off the, the back deck so that they wouldn't get hit. Nobody got hurt, miraculously. Nobody got hurt. But I can tell you, him and I had a conversation about his jet ski skills after that. <laughs> And about the truth that you have to put forth. And, and, and eventually, he basically just said, all I wanted to do was impress. I just wanted people to think I was good at it. And I wanted to drive a jet ski. I'm like, well, don't do it when you got the lives of students on the line. Kind of thing. So, but he wanted to impress. And we have this pressure in us. And you know what? We have this pressure in us where we want to look better to other people. We want people to think more of us, that we got everything is okay. And that's in us. That's inside of us. And it's the same thing that happened here. Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted people to know how great they were. And so they said, here's all the money, but it wasn't all the money. They lied. And so what happened next? Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. He breathed his last, and a great fear or a megaphobos seized all who heard what had happened. Which is kind of what you would expect in a situation like that. And then there's this interesting verse, verse 6. Then some of the young men, or interns, if you will, came forward, wrapped up the body, and carried it out, and buried him immediately. Now the interesting thing there is this. It was Jewish culture to bury a body on the day of its passing. So if, a, if someone passed away, they would be buried that day. But what was customary was to do it with the family. But in this case... They did not tell the family. And so there's only a few times throughout Scripture where God has executed judgment through immediate death. And in every case that that has happened, there has been an immediate response to bury the body. And we're not really sure what it is. We're not sure if the body is defiled in that sense, where you need to get it into the ground right away. We're not sure. But we just know in every situation that is what has happened. They bury the body immediately. But what we do know for sure 
through scripture is that sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. It doesn't normally happen that fast, you know. It doesn't happen that quickly, but sin leads to death. See, sin doesn't make us bad, which a lot of people believe. Sin makes us dead. Sin doesn't make us bad. Think about that. Prior to the time in the garden, they were going to live forever, correct? Sin entered in the equation. All of a sudden, we now have a lifetime instead of life forever. And so when sin entered in, death became a part of it. Romans 6.23 says this. It says, for the wages of sin or the cost or the price or the result of sin is death. James 1.15 says, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished or fully grown, it, gives, it brings forth death. Proverbs 14.12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man because it's natural living in sin, but in the end leads to death. So I don't know if you ever heard that before, but sin doesn't make you bad. Sin makes you dead. And that's the direct result of it. And yet we are surprised in this passage with Ananias and Sapphira when they drop dead immediately from the sin that they have committed. Basically, it happened just fast. They received the deserved punishment for what they have done, which was death, but they just had it happen immediately. What I think is interesting is we should be more surprised from the life we received from Christ and the grace we received from Christ than the death that will always follow when it comes to sin. That should shock us. That should shock us because we've received grace, undeserved grace from sin. The direct result of sin is death. And when we don't have that, when we have eternity and an opportunity um, to live forever because of Christ, that should surprise us. That's That's the opposite side of things. That's the good thing. That's the good news. That is the gospel. And so verse 7, let's keep going. The, verse, the story repeats itself. About three hours later, his wife, Sapphira, came in not knowing what had happened. So she's completely in the dark here. And then Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price or the full amount of money you and Ananias got for the land? And it's interesting here because I want you to know Peter is not trying to manipulate her and trick her into something. Peter is simply giving her an opportunity, a pastoral opportunity to come clean. He's saying, is this it? Are you telling the truth? Are you sure you're telling the truth in that sense? And unfortunately says, yes, uh, that is the price. And so she lied. And in verse 9, then Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? And notice that. It's the spirit of the Lord. So again, their offense was not against the people they deceived, but against God. Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And then instantly, at that moment, she fell down at at his feet and died. Then, guess who? The young men, who were obviously not being paid overtime, came in again, and they were finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband, which which is nice, you know put her next to her husband. As a result, great fear seized the whole church. And you know what I find interesting about that verse right there? That is the first time in the Bible we see the word church. Prior to that, we don't see the word church. In the NIV, that's the first time it comes forth. And all who heard about these things, they were seized with fear. You know, truly, do me a favor. Think about this. Put yourself in this situation. I get that it is only 11 verses on a piece of paper. 
But put yourself in that situation. They're assuming most theologians believe this was kind of like a church service. So it was like a church service where everyone has gathered and then people are coming forward and they give this gift. And so you would imagine if you're sitting in that audience, if you're one of the interns on the side paying attention or what's going on, and they bring forward this gift and everyone probably is like, woohoo, that's amazing, well done, let's applaud them. And yet Peter is like, oh, is that it? And then all of a sudden they're like, yes, it is it. And then they lied and without explanation, he falls down dead. Imagine if that was the case, if we're just worshiping here and I'm like, I ask you, so how's tithing going? And all of a sudden, one of you just falls down dead. That would be disturbing. <laughs> you know, are you giving the full 10%? Oh, yes? Not sure. Oh, he's dead. Next one. <laughs> Where's your wife, by the way? I want to check with her. So imagine how crazy that would be. Someone passes away in the middle of a church service. That would freak out. That would be a total scary situation. So what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Well, I can tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take a few seconds and take an offering, a quick offering right now. That's what we're going to do. No, we're not going to do that. Here's what we're going to do. What I want to do is I want to try to answer the obvious question, the obvious question, and then I want to look at the obvious mistake in this story, in this actual event, because this is a historical event. So the obvious question is, why did God kill them? Why did God smite them in that moment? You know, because we just entered in, think about this, the age of grace. Jesus has just offered us the opportunity to believe in him, and now we have faith in him, and we are forgiven for our mistakes, but yet this happens right after. And so what I believe is that this is a unique story, and the reason I believe that is because we don't see this type of behavior anywhere else in the New Testament. We don't see it like that. And so this is not typical. This is out of the ordinary. Therefore, we shouldn't try to create doctrine out of something like this because it's not in the ordinary. But I do believe that the answer is in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, where all of a sudden you have Barnabas who receives this recognition. He gets these accolades. Everyone's cheering on. Yay, way to go, Barnabas. And then he receives position. Because we believe that he got position within the church and this was the first moment that he came forward. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they see that and they want what Barnabas had received. They want the same recognition and perhaps they even wanted the same position that he received in that moment. And so their, their intentions are not as pure as Barnabas's were. And so the problem with them, if they were to actually receive that recognition and receive that position, is that the church was so young. Like, it literally just started. There isn't another church. There's only one church, and it's an infant. It's a baby. If you're into plants, it's like a little shoot. And what we don't want is what God didn't want was any infection to jump into that. would have been catastrophic at that moment. Let's just think if they got onto the elder board at the church, and they were making decisions, and they have this cancerous deception at the core of them, and God put them in the place of leadership of the early church, you can't have that. You cannot have that. And so what God decides to do is he decides to make a statement early on. He's going he's to let the early church know. He's going to know, yes, I am God. And yes, I am forgiving. And yes, I, I, I am merciful. I truly am. But I'm not going to be lied to. And so what he ended up deciding to do is he decided to take out the poison before the poison could contaminate this baby, fragile movement of God. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they received most likely what they would eventually received, the judgment that they, that they did for lying and for sinning and for going against him, they received it just instantly. 
And so what God basically did is he pruned his early church early on. He pruned the church. And so the bottom line answer is why the best biblical answer that we can give is that he was protecting the fragile church at that time. That's the best answer that we have. And you know what, we could be wrong in that, but that's the best. Looking at what God has given us in his word, that's the best answer that we could find is that the reason why is he didn't want this poison to enter into the early church, especially at this critical moment in history when they're just about ready to explode. And so that's the obvious question. So what about the obvious mistake? Because like I said, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about Peter's, you know, pastoral approach. And it also, you know, wasn't about these poor young men being worked overtime kind of a thing. Ananias and Sapphira died because they lied. They died because they lied. It wasn't because they withheld anything. They died because they lied. And they felt this pressure that we all feel this pressure that's inside of us to perform, to pretend to be something that we're not, to portray like everything is okay and to be perfect. And I was thinking about this this week, this idea of being perfect. I feel it. I don't know about you guys, but I feel this desire. Oh, I got to be perfect. I got to do it right. I, gotta, I don't know if it's my OCD or what. I just feel like I got to be perfect at times. And I thought to myself, you know what? That is a God-given trait, a God-given desire. Not to be perfect, but we were made perfect prior to the fall. So it's in our DNA, is it not? That we would desire for things. When things are wrong or we've been wrong and it's an injustice, don't we feel like that innately inside of us? Because the world was made perfect and we were made perfect in the world. And when we chose sin, that perfection became unattainable on our own unattainable. So it's inside of us. So when you feel like, oh, I want to be perfect, well, that's because God made you perfect at one point in time. He made the human race perfect, and we missed it. And so they feel this pressure, this natural-born pressure to be perfect. But the problem is nobody's going to be perfect. You will never be perfect without Christ Jesus. You can try and try and try and try, but you will never be perfect. And you know what? There's going to be no church that's going to be perfect either. So many of you have come from other churches where maybe you have been hurt or you have been, things have gone in a struggle or it's been hard for you and that church hurts you. I'm just going to tell you again, it's not a perfect church you came from and pretty soon we'll probably make a bunch of mistakes as well and we may hurt you as well. This church won't be perfect. But the one thing that I hope that we will be and the one thing I hope we will all be and I hope to be is this, is that we will be honest with God. And that's the whole point of this passage, I believe, is that God wants us to be honest with him. Not to try to fake it, not to try to, 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 you know, pull one fast one over on God, but to trust him and to be honest with him. And that's the big thing. We can trust him. When you're honest with God, scripture tells us he's not always going to kill you in the moment, all right? He's not going to smite you in the moment, but you can trust him. You can trust him. And then the other part of that is, like, <laughs> he already knows, you know? God knows everything, absolutely everything. So I find it funny when we're not honest with him, but he already knows. For example, my, uh, my, little, my second-born Maggie, when she was a little kid, um, we, uh, we were walking through uh, the house, and we realized that there was blue marker all over the walls, Right? And so it leaves us, it leaves us two options. Um, first off, if my wife did it, that's strange, okay? 
So it's either Paisley or it's Maggie. And so we got the girls together, and when we got Paisley together and we got Maggie together, we noticed that Maggie, um, she had a blue pen in her hand and in her mouth. Here's a picture of it right here. Um, and so... So we knew Paisley was off the hook. We knew it wasn't her, you know, or that she drew in her sister's mouth and then handed her the pin, one of the two. So we sent Paisley away, and we were talking to Maggie. Like, so Maggie, did you draw on the wall? And Maggie's like, no. Like, well, well no, no, hold on, Maggie. Did you, I'm gonna, did you draw on the wall? Did you make all those pretty artwork on the wall? I'm like, no. And we asked her over and over again, and she would not, the stubborn little girl would not say that she did it. But we knew that she did it. And it's the same thing with us and God at times. He's like, God, God asks us about these things. He's not asking us to find out information. He's asking us so that we will admit to what has happened, that we will be straight with him, that we will be honest with him. That's the point. We knew Maggie did that all along. God knows what he's done, and yet he loves us. When I was sitting there with my daughter, I was not mad at her in the slightest. I just wanted to, her to tell the truth. And God wants the same thing. He wants honesty with us. He wants us to be in an honest, sincere, genuine relationship. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he, being God, is the one to whom we are accountable. You guys, my hope for myself and you as individuals is that we could be honest with God, that we would be shooting straight with him. He knows one way or the other, but for some reason we try not to be honest with him. We don't want to give him everything or we don't want to tell him the truth when he knows it already. And we play this game, and we think that he doesn't understand what it means to, to, to be under pressure, to have these people look at us and pressure on us, and we got to be this certain thing or be that certain thing. I pray that we're honest with God, and I pray that here at this church we could be an honest community. That is one of my hopes for this church, is this, and you're going you're gonna to get this from me. I'm going to be honest to a fault up here. I'll probably say things, <laughs> which I already have, that I shouldn't be saying on a Sunday morning. But I would rather us be honest and transparent before each other. You will never hear anyone stand up here and say, you know what? If you follow God and you trust in Jesus, then everything's going to be okay. Life is going to get better. You won't have any problems. It's just smooth sailing from there. That is how the gospel has been shared in the past. It is not how the gospel will be shared here. Because it does not happen that way. Life is difficult. Eventually, the promise of heaven, the great news of the gospel is it will be okay. But it may not be okay on this planet. With the disciples, it just got worse for them. So let's be honest in the process. You know? Can we just be transparent with each other? What would it look like if we had a community where we truly were that way? Now, I'm not saying I want us all to come in and just have a dump fest about all the crappy things that are going on in our life. That would be frustrating. That would be hard. Right? But let's be at least authentic and genuine. And if someone asks you, how's your day going, and your day's going terrible, then just like, yeah, it's been rough. Just share that. It could even be with a stranger, someone you haven't met. It might be an awkward conversation, but go for it, you know? <laughs> Let's create that type of community. I pray that you would have that with you and Christ, that you would be genuine and sincere in your relationship and your interactions with God, and I pray that we would have that same thing as a church. It takes intentionality to do that. 
And so we are intentionally going to try to create that type of community. Because I don't want to live in any other community except for a community that's being honest with each other. And if there's any place that we can be honest, it should be in a church. But yet, for some reason, isn't it funny? That's where we're like the least honest about our junk. We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. This church will never be perfect. But thank God that Jesus is perfect. And one day we will live in a place that is perfect. In the meantime, let's be honest. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus. You were so honest with us and who you were and your intentions when you came to this planet. And we know that we can trust you because of what you have done for us. You have laid it all on the line. You have given us grace when we didn't deserve it. In passages like this in Ananias and Sapphira, it's confusing. It truly is. Why would you do that? But you're God and we trust you in that. But if we can learn anything, we obviously learn that we, that we got to be honest with you. And so, Lord, I pray, I'm going to start here with me. I, I pray for myself. Will you help me to be honest? Would you give me the courage to be honest with you? At times when I feel like I want to perform for you, I want to earn my salvation, I want to impress you so to be like, oh, yeah, that's my son. But you don't want any of that. You just want me to be your son. And I pray for every person here, every son and daughter that's inside of this room, would you do the same? Would you help them and give them the courage, give all of us the courage to be honest with you? We want to trust you and we know we can trust you and so help us to not lie to each other and not lie to you but to live in a reality of transparency. And so Lord, thank you for every person here. I pray that you would give us that courage as you had courage to go to the cross. You were perfect. Oh man, you were perfect and because of that, we have grace. We have an opportunity to live in eternity with you. In your name we pray, amen.